Welcome to the Disciple Dare, a four-week series to challenge you to discover what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. More info on the Disciple Dare can be found at ViennaSDA.org. Pastor Jennifer Deans shows you through stories from the Bible how living the dare will give you hope in troubled times and joy in life. And this message, A Loving God and Hell. Hell, that's a very interesting topic to talk about. Um, what, what is hell? Hell is one of those topics that, um, you know, at the beginning of the, when America was formed, all these preachers would go around and they would preach hell and brimstone and they would talk about stuff that um, hell's fires are so hot that if we took the hottest fire here on earth and we put it in hell's fire, that it would turn to ice. And they would just scare the living daylights out of people. That if you don't get your act together, you're going to burn in hell forever and ever and ever. And when a lot of people think about hell, you get this concept of God cannot possibly be a loving God and have hell. That just, how does that work? How can God, you know, burn people in hell forever and ever and ever and still be a God of love like it tells us in 1 John 4? God is love. That just doesn't seem to coexist. We're going to just do a little diving into that today. Um, I love God, and I love the Old Testament. One day, um, God decides he's going to come hang out with Abraham. And so he's walking, and as he's, as he's walking, he walks up to where Abraham's tents are, and walking as if he's going to go past, but Abraham comes out and meets him and says, hey, stranger, how you doing? Uh, why don't you come eat lunch with us? And so... He goes and he prepares the appropriate meals. And in the conversation, he realizes who he's talking to. Abraham knows he's talking to God. And they have a little conversation about, you know, Abraham and Sarah still hadn't had any kids yet. And they really wanted kids. And so God promises that Sarah will have a kid. And she laughs. And God's like, why is she laughing? What's going on? And then a year later, they do have Isaac. But later on in the conversation, as God and Abraham are sitting there around a meal, just talking, it says in um, Genesis chapter 18 that God kind of thinks to himself, should I tell Abraham what I'm doing? Should I tell him what I'm actually here for? And so God decides that, yes, I will tell Abraham what I'm here for. And so he sits and he looks at Abraham and he says, I have heard some things about Sodom and Gomorrah. Not so good. They're doing some bad stuff down there. Not cool. And I've come down to destroy them. And um, Abraham's like, what? That's not good because Abraham's um, nephew, Lot, lived in, uh, near Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, um, you know, Abraham's like, no, this isn't good. This isn't good. Lot's going to get killed. Um, and so he, Abraham is very bold. He has a connection with God that I don't know a lot of us have. And he says, hey, God, um, I know that you, you're coming down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but how about if you can find 50 righteous people that live there? How about you not do it? God says, okay. If we find 50 righteous people, we won't destroy. And then Abraham starts thinking. He's been to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not sure there's 50 people in Sodom and Gomorrah that are righteous. And so he says, hey, God, um, you know, just let me talk one more time. Um, what about 45 people? If we can find 45 people who are righteous, we spare Sodom and Gomorrah. God's like, okay, for 45, that works. Yeah, no, God, I'm not sure that's going to work either. How about 40? 
God's like, okay, for 40 righteous people, we won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham's like, he's really thinking and he's trying to count in his head. And he's just not, he's not getting very far. He's like, God, and he'd been going down in increments of five, but now he, he jumps down an increment of 10. He's like, how about, how about if there's just 30 people in Sodom and Gomorrah? How about you not destroy it then? God's like, okay. For 30 righteous people in the city, I won't destroy the city. And Abraham's like, how about 20? God's like, okay. And I can just picture it on my face. God is sitting there just totally amused and happy and seeing the love that Abraham has for the city, this wicked, evil city. And Abraham is frantic and he's desperate and he's thinking and he's counting in his head and he's counting Lot's family members. But then he's like, yeah, but that person doesn't follow God anymore. And he's going, God, what about, what about 10? And God says, all right. For 10 righteous people, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God leaves. He goes on his way. Abraham spends time in his tent. Sometime later, Lot is sitting outside the city gates where he normally sits, where he spends time, and two strange men come walking up. Lot knows the city. He knows what it's like, and it's getting dark. It's getting towards the evening, which is the most dangerous time to be a new person in the city. And so Lot goes running up to the two men, and he says, "Um, I need you to come over to my house for dinner tonight. I would love to have you come over. And they're like, no, that's okay. We're fine. No, but I think you should stay at my house tonight. I think you'd be a really, you should come. My, My wife is an excellent cook. She's the best cook around. You need to come. They're like, no, we can stay in the park. Oh, no, no, you should stay at my house tonight. We have really nice beds. You need to stay at my house tonight. Lot knows full well what Sodom and Gomorrah are capable of. And so he convinces the two strangers, and they go, and they're having a great meal. And what Lot dreaded happened. A knock on the door, and he heard the crowd coming. They were coming. They were drunk. And they were coming, and so Lot says, stay here. Do not come out. And so Lot goes out, and he says, hi, guys, how you doing, neighbors? What do you? And they're like, we want those two men. We want to have sex with them. And Lot's like, come on, guys, that's just not right. You, no, you guys can't do that. Lot, you give us those two men. No, I can't. They're in the, I'm protecting them. They're in my hospitality. I can't turn them over to you. Lot, you're a foreigner. If you don't give us those two men, we're going to do something even worse to you. So Lot's sitting there frantic, and he's thinking, I can't turn over my guests. I can't give them to these evil people. And he's like, how about this? I've got two virgin daughters. How about you take them? And they're like, no, we don't want the girls. We don't want the girls. We want the men. And with that, they start charging at Lot. And Lot doesn't even know what happened. He thought he got knocked out by one of them. But instead, somehow he's inside, and the two men are gone. And he's like, oh no, they can't, what happened? Did they pull me in? And Lot's wife says, yeah, they, they pulled you in and then they, then they went outside. And so he opens the door and he finds very interesting, a very strange sight. The men, instead of ganging up on the two strangers, the men of the city are confused. They're like, what happened? I can't see. And the two men said, God is going to destroy the city. Get everyone you can and get out. Go tell your daughters, go tell their fiancés, go tell 
get him and get out. So Lot's like, well, he knows, he's seen something miraculous. These men are blind and they're wandering around in the dark. And um, he knows it wouldn't be good for them to all of a sudden have their eyesight. He knows something is going to happen. And so he goes and he goes to his daughter's homes, to their fiancés, and he pleads with them, the city is going to be destroyed tonight. You've got to come. They're like, crazy old man, have you been drinking? What are you doing? They don't listen to him. And Lot gets back, and it's now the early hours of the morning, and the two men who are angels are getting impatient. Lot, we've got to go. We've got to go now. And Lot's just trying to think. He wants his girls to come. He knows something's going to happen. He's a bit confused by the whole thing, so much to the point where the angels have to grab him by the hand, and they grab his wife and his daughters, and they run out of the city. And as they're running out of the city, he says, Lot, keep running. The city is going to be destroyed. Keep going. Go to the hills. Get out of here and don't look back. Lot's like, I can't make it to the hills. It's going to be too far. Let me go to Zor. Angels are like, fine, go to Zor, but don't look back. And so as Lot and his wife and his daughters, they're running all of a sudden, a bright light behind them happens, and an immense heat happens, and it's just too much. His wife, who's been crying the whole time, it's not fair, I didn't get to pack my stuff, turns around, and Lot's like, where's your mother? What happened to your mother? I don't hear her anymore. And without turning around, backs up and finds a pillar of salt, exactly like his wife. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is probably one of the best stories to illustrate what hell is. There's so much that we can learn from the story when we're talking about hell. In fact, the Bible a number of times refers to what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah as a sign of what's going to happen and with hell, what's going to happen. So first of all, we need to understand what is hell when we're thinking of, because just like Sodom and Gomorrah, it tells us in Matthew 25 that as it was in the days of Noah and Lot, so will it be before Jesus comes back again. So the world's going to get really bad, really wicked. You know, the word sodomy comes from somewhere. It comes from Sodom. These people were perverse, they were evil, they were so degenerate that God couldn't even find four people who were righteous in the whole city. He only found three. Lot's wife wasn't even willing to totally leave. It was a horrible city. So what is hell if it's not something, because we just learned that when we die we go to sleep, if it's not something we go to when we die and we've been bad, and so... What is hell? Is God waiting? Is he going to wake people up and then put them in hell? What is it? Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It's page 1022. Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. It's 1020. Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, sorry. And it says, death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. 
The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. So we get a picture that sometime there's going to be this big lake of fire that anybody whose name hasn't been recorded in the Lamb's book of life or anyone who isn't reserved interest in the kingdom of heaven is going to be thrown into this lake of fire. All right? So let's look at um, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. What does Matthew twenty-five forty-one tell us? That's page eight hundred four. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Matthew twenty-five forty-one tells us. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. So, this is the parable that Jesus is talking about, the sheep and the goats. And he says, when Jesus comes back again, there's going to be two groups of people. The sheep are going to be on his right, and the goats are going to be on his left. The sheep, he's going to say, well done, good job, way to go. For you clothed me, you fed me. And they're going to say, what? When did we do all that? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Then he's going to look at the goats, and he's going to say, away with you into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. So the fire is prepared for the devil and its angels, but it's also prepared for all the goats, all the people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. How do we... How do we understand a hell, a burning, a lake of fire where God's going to put people if God is love? How does that work? There's a lot of different things that we hear about hell. But first of all, it, it would be helpful for us to understand when and where hell is because most people's concept of hell is it's happening right now. As soon as you die, you either go to heaven or hell. But we just learned that when you die, you sleep. So hell can't be happening right now. So let's try to figure out when hell is, and then we'll figure out a few more things about it. Look at 791, uh, page 791, which is Matthew 13, verse 40. Matthew 13, verse 40. Matthew 13, verse 40. We're going to start in... um, We're going to start in verse 39. It says, The enemy planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. Jesus is talking here, and he's talking to his disciples about what's going to happen at the end of the world. And he says that a farmer goes out and he plants a field, And he plants with wheat, with good food, and that night his enemy comes through and he plants on top of the wheat, he plants tares, he plants weeds. And as the wheat and the weeds begin to grow, the farmhands come out and say, "Um, somebody planted weeds, there's so many of them. And God says, yeah. And he's like, should we go pick out all the weeds? And the guy says, no, not now. If you look up, in verse um, 12, or in verse um, 28, it says, The enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do so. Let both grow together until the harvest. When I tell you the harvester to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them to put the wheat in the barn. And so it tells us that the wheat 
which is the good crop and the tares, grow together until the harvest. Jesus later explains that it's the end of time when the wheat gets thrown into the fire. So we get our first clue. Hell happens, the fire happens that burns up the evil, happens at the end of time. Let's see what else the Bible has to say about this. Let's look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, page 775. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and all the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. So, when does this verse say that hell is going to take place? It says, the day is coming. So, it's not something that's happening currently. It's not something that's happening right now. The day is coming, and it's coming, and what happens? The wicked are going to be burned up. They're going to be burned up like straw. Have you guys ever put straw in the fire? How fast does that burn up? That's like fast. It's right now. It doesn't take long like wet wood does. It burns now. So we find that hell is happening sometimes in the future, sometime when the harvest is. Let's look and see what else we can learn about. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, page 998. 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, page 998. We're going to read verse 7, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth will be stored up with fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly people will be destroyed. All right, so the ungodly people are going to be destroyed by fire when, according to this verse? The day of judgment. So when is judgment happening? We've talked about this before. The judgment phase of God's ministry started in 1844 at the end of the 2300-day prophecy, and it's happening now. So, when the judgment is complete, what is going to happen? The sentencing. That's when Jesus comes back. So, when the judgment is complete, when Jesus comes back, we're getting, we're getting a concept. That's when the judgment is getting there. So, let's, let's see what else we have. Um, John chapter 5, verse 28. Turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 28, page 865. John chapter 5, verse 28, page 865. John chapter 5, verse 28 says, Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God. So how many people in the graves are going to hear God's voice? All of them, okay? And they will rise again. So all the people are going to hear God's voice who have ever died, good and bad, and they're going to rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. All right? So John chapter 5 tells us that there's going to be two resurrections. There's going to be the one resurrection that is reserved for those 
who have eternal life, and then there's going to be another resurrection for those who are evil when they wake up and they receive judgment. So when, are these, when did these things take place? Turn with me to Revelation chapter um, 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse page 1020. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read verses 4 and 5. It says, Then I saw thrones, and people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or on their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. So when did the good people come to life again? The first resurrection, when Jesus comes back after the end of the world. Then it says in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Parentheses, it says, the rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. All right? So our first resurrection is when Jesus comes back, and then there's a thousand year period before the dead the evil dead get resurrected, all right? What is happening during that thousand-year period? Do you have any idea? All right. The records are reviewed. It says in verse 4, I saw thrones, and who was sitting on those thrones? Verse 4. People. The righteous people are sitting on the thrones, and what are they doing sitting on those thrones? Judging. Who are they judging? What are they judging? Okay, God's already finished his judgment. That's why there's some righteous who are alive who happen to be awake at the moment and that the, de- the wicked are dead. So there's not going to be a change. The people during the thousand years, the righteous are judging God. Satan started this whole fiasco, this whole sin problem by saying God isn't love. He's holding out on you. And so the biggest question throughout all history is God loving? Is he just? Is he fair? And so what we get to do is we get to sit on those thrones and we get to look at history. Say Aunt Susie's not in heaven. Why isn't Aunt Susie in heaven? She went to church every day of her life. You know, she was there even when the church wasn't open. Why isn't she in heaven? We get to look at Aunt Susie's life. And we get to see the decision she made. And we will get to see that God was loving and just and fair in his assessment that Aunt Susie shouldn't be in heaven. Or what if Hitler's in heaven? Why in the world is Hitler in heaven? Did you see all the horrible things that Hitler did? We get to look at Hitler's life and we get to see that, oh yeah, just before he died and committed suicide, He accepted Jesus, and God was loving and just and fair in doing that. We get to judge God. Just like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God goes and he tells Abraham what's happening, and he gives Abraham an opportunity to understand that he is loving and just and fair. And then when Abraham doesn't quite get the magical number to save Sodom and Gomorrah because there's not enough righteous people in the city? Does God just demolish the whole city? No, he sends two angels who go and take the righteous people out of the city. God gives us a thousand years in heaven where we get to judge him to make sure that he was loving and just and fair in his assessment before hell happens. 
He hasn't wiped out sin completely yet. In fact, God has chained Satan and the devil to the earth. They're not allowed to tempt anybody. They're running around and they're, they're, they can't do anything. They can't do anything except for remember what they've done, the decisions they've made. So when does hell happen? Hell happens after the thousand years. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse, verses 2 and 3. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So after the thousand years, God takes and he moves heaven. He moves the new Jerusalem, the city in heaven, and he's moving it here on earth. And and heaven is coming down and it's beautiful. So what happens? Where is hell? What happens? Look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 through 9. It says, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then, when the thousand years came to an end, Satan will be led out of his prison. He will go about deceiving the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth, and he will gather them for battle, a mighty army, as numberless as the sands of the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounding God's people and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven, attacking the... um, came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. The devil, who had been de- the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beasts and the false prophets. Then they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is when hell happens. So Jesus comes back at the end of our known world. Everybody who is not righteous is either killed by his glory or is already dead. They don't get raised to life. All the righteous go to heaven for a thousand years. A thousand years in heaven, they get to judge God to see if God is loving, just, and fair. After that, God brings his city, his holy city, down out of heaven onto this earth. So where is hell happening? On earth, because as the city is settling on earth, Satan gets to talk to all the evil people. There is a resurrection. Remember, John told us everyone would be resurrected. So the evil people have been resurrected, and Satan is released to go and collect them. And he goes to Gog and Magog, which stand for the cities of the earth, the big people. He gets everybody, and he surrounds them again, and he convinces them we can take the city, we can take God. It's not over yet. And so as they're rallying for battle and as they're marching on the city, which is on earth, fire comes down and consumes them. Hell happens after the thousand years on this earth. This little last part here is it's a bit disturbing. It says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What does that mean? <laughs> Um, 
It's here in this earth, right? So does that mean that the holy city is going to be here and right next door because the armies were marching up on the city? So right outside the city walls, there's going to be fire burning forever and ever. And for the rest of eternity, every time we leave the city, we have to pass through hell and watch people get tormented? No, that's not what it is. Um, We can't go to our dictionaries to understand what forever and ever is means we need to go to the Bible and understand the Bible's concept of forever and ever to get an idea of what it means to burn forever and ever. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, which is page 63. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. Exodus 21, verse 6, not 20. Exodus 21, verse 6. Here is where the the laws about how to treat slaves fairly is being handed down. And in verse 5 it says, um, But the slave made it clear, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. The original word here is forever. It's one of the nice things about a translation is they can translate it. And what the New Living Translation did is it translated what they meant by the word instead of the actual word. What is meant? How long is the slave going to have to serve his master? Is he going to have to serve him forever, even after he dies? No. Forever in this case means his lifetime. He is committed to be the slave of this person because he loves his master till he dies. He's not going to be that person's slave in heaven or in an afterlife somewhere. It's just till he dies. It's his life. All right, so we're beginning to get a concept of forever is as long as the person is, is in existence. Well, let's look at Jonah chapter 2. Page 747, Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. Page 747. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. Page 747. It says, I sank down to the very roots of the mountain. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O O Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. So this is when Jonah is in the whale, or the big fish, and he's praying, and he's like, I've been locked down here forever. Now, how long is Jonah's forever? How long was Jonah in the big fish? It tells us at the end of chapter um, 1, verse 17, Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. So Jonah's, he's in there, and it seems like forever he's in there. How long is forever? Three days. It's until his time in that situation was over. Once it was over, that existence was done. So it's forever ended. Does that make sense? We're getting a concept that the forever used in the Bible, it is until the period of time ends. Okay? Let's, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. 
1 Samuel chapter 1, page 223. 1 Samuel chapter 1, page 223. 1 Samuel chapter 1, page 22. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. It says, But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, Wait until the boy is weaned, then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him with the Lord permanently. The word there, the original word, is forever. So um, Hannah is going to take her baby son, Samuel, and leave him in the temple forever. So how long does that mean? How long is Samuel going to stay in the temple? His entire life. If you look at the end of the chapter, verse 28, it says, Now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. So forever in the Bible means until it's complete, until it's done. It can be a lifetime or three days. What we read earlier, it talks about when the judgment would happen and the fire would happen in the future, it's going to be like burning straw. How long does straw take to burn? Pretty quick. So its existence, its forever could be three seconds. So the burning forever and ever doesn't mean that it's going to be an eternity like we understand eternity and never end. It's going to be until it's burned up, until it no longer exists. Does that make sense? So when God is burning the wicked people, he's burning them up until forever and ever until they no longer exist anymore. Well, that's one of the words. A few, there's a few other words in the Bible. It talks about um, there's going to be unquenchable fires. So what does the unquenchable fire mean? In Mark chapter 9, verse 43, it tells us that it's better for you to cut your hand off um, and live this life with one hand, if your hand is causing you to sin, than to go to hell's unquenchable fires. So what do the unquenchable fires mean? What does that mean? Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27, page 626. Jeremiah Chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27. Page 626. Jeremiah 17, verse 27 says, But if you do not listen to me and refuse to keep the Sabbath holy... If on the Sabbath day you bring your loads of merchandise through the gates of Jerusalem, just as on the other days, then I will set the fire to these gates. The fire will spread to the palace, and no one will be able to put out the roaring flames. The original translation is it will burn forever. The gates of Jerusalem will burn forever. Did the Israelites ever quit breaking the law and quit? Did they ever start listening to God? No, they, they royally screwed things up. So, were the gates of Jerusalem ever burned? When Nebuchadnezzar came and, um, when he came and conquered Jerusalem, he burned the city walls, and the fires described there, once lit, they couldn't be put out. They were unquenchable. They're not still burning today. Is um, Jerusalem still on fire today? No, it's not still burning. It burned until it burned itself out. It was unquenchable, unstoppable. The same thing happened in AD 70 after Jesus talked about the temple would be destroyed with not one stone left on another. The Romans, when they lit the fire in the, in the temple and in the gates of Jerusalem, 
It burned and they couldn't put it out. The fire was so blazing. But Jerusalem is not still burning today. Unquenchable just simply means it can't be put out by human hands. So there's nothing that we can do to stop hellfires. We can't put out hellfires, but it doesn't mean that God is going to keep them burning forever and ever unquenchably here on earth while we're here. There's one other thing that says it's going to be everlasting. And Jude, look with me to Jude chapter 1, verse 7, which is um, Judas page 1006. It's just before Revelation. Jude chapter 1, which is there only is one chapter, so verse 7. It says, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion, whose cities were destroyed by fire and as a severe warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So, Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by fire is supposed to be a symbol of God's eternal fire. Are Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? No. So if that eternal fire that burned Sodom and Gomorrah is supposed to be an example of God's eternal fire, is God's eternal fire going to burn limitlessly? No. God's fire is much hotter than people think hellfire is. Even though I told you at the beginning of the century, preachers said that the hottest fire on earth would turn to ice if it was put into hellfire. Yeah, but a fire that hot would consume. But they have a concept that it burns forever and it torches, pe- tortures people and they're never going to get out. Well, the hellfire that God has is so much hotter than that hellfire. What actually happens to the people who end up in hell? Look at Micah chapter 4, verse 3. Micah chapter 4, verse 3, page 775. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. It says, On that day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Another word for translation for dust is ash. So basically what it says, in that day after... The fires burn and consume everything like straw. God is going to trample on the wicked as if they're ash. What happens after you burn something in the fire? You end up with ashes. So the people are going to be burned. They're going to be completely consumed. Psalms chapter 37 tells us that the wicked will vanish into smoke. Smoke, you see it for a second, and then it dissipates. It doesn't stay around forever and ever and ever. Look with me to Obadiah chapter, um, chapter 1, verse 16, which is page 745. Obadiah, 745, verse 15. It says, The day is near when the Lord will judge all the godless nations. As you, would, as you have done to Israel, so will it be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations um, will swallow up the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all the nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. So God says the people who are evil 
are going to disappear from history. How can they disappear if they're burning outside of heaven the whole time we're in existence in heaven? It doesn't correlate. So what is hell? Hell is the purging fires. The fire is seen as, in the Bible as something that purges. It gets rid of disease. It gets rid of other stuff. There are certain things that if it was touched by a dead animal had to be burned in the Bible because it carried disease. And we even see that when the bubonic plague and other stuff happened. People used fire to get rid of it. They didn't try to sterilize it any other way because fire is a cleansing agent. So what happens is God in his love, he, he warns us. He tells us just like he went and he told Abraham. He says, here are my plans. Here's what's going to happen. He tells us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. This is what God's plans are. Matthew 16, verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will judge all according to their deeds. So it's not something that's going to happen on accident. We know what's coming. We know that there's going to be a judgment. Just like God came down and he told Abraham, and then God sent his angels into Sodom and Gomorrah to talk to Lot. He warned them. He gave them a choice. So he tells us what's going to happen. He gives people a choice. How can a God of love not just take everybody to heaven? Why does there have to be a hell? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 19. Let's look at the story of Lot, and let's see if we can get a few clues. Genesis chapter 19. Why can't God just take everybody? Why does there have to be a hell? Why do the wicked have to be burned up? It doesn't seem like a loving thing to do. Lot tells us, um, Lot is out arguing with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They want these two strangers who have come in. So um, Genesis chapter 19, verse 8 says, Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can have, um, do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone, for they are my guests and under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. These, this fellow came to this town as an outsider. Now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those men. They lunged towards Lot to break down the door. All right. So, here's a picture of the type of people that aren't going to be allowed in heaven. People like Sodom and Gomorrah. Who are so deprived and so away from God's plan that, you know, when I first read this and I was thinking about how could Lot offer his daughters? That's just evil. Why would he do that? It was a futile offering. They didn't even want women. That's not what they were looking for. They were so sickened by sin that they were depraved. And that's not what they were looking for. Lot probably knew that it, was, it wasn't worth offering. He could offer just to make an attempt. But it wasn't as if he was putting his daughters in danger because that's not where they were going. Heaven would be hell for people who don't choose to be there. Think of it this way. I'm an axe murderer, and I love to kill people with axes. That's my favorite thing to do in the whole world. The only thing that excites me is when I get to chop them to bits and pieces. If God, this loving God, forces me to go to heaven, am I ever going to be happy? (laughs) Am I going to get to chop people up with axes in heaven? No. 
Heaven would be hell for me. I wouldn't be allowed to do what is making me happy. The reason a God of love can't just say everybody can go to heaven is because of the depravity that sin is and what it does to us. It's evident in Lot's wife. The angel is pulling her out by the hand. God is doing absolutely everything he can to get her out, get her away from destruction, and she wants to go back. She's been told what's going to happen, and she's been told don't look back, and there's something in her that doesn't want to leave, and she turns around. She chooses. God, even while he's pulling her out, turns around and goes the other way. People who don't choose to be in heaven, God in his love will never force them to be in heaven. But once this big cosmic battle is over, because he loves us, and once the question has been finalized after the thousand years where we know God is loving and just and fair in his decisions, he is not going to subject us to sin any longer. And so he's going to use fire to purge the world of sin. He is going to use fire, and the fire is going to burn and consume forever and ever until they're burned up. How do we know this? Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Page 1021. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. God is going to recreate this world. The old heaven heaven and the old earth that have been marred by sin, that have had sin's blight on them, are going to be recreated in perfection. And it tells us in verse 4 that there's going to be no more tears, there's going to be no more sorrow, it's going to be joy. We are going to be at peace with God. Hell is not something that is burning forever and ever. And hell is not some place that God wants to send people because he's spiteful. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18, the last verse we're looking up. Ezekiel chapter 18, page 680. Ezekiel chapter 18, page 680. Ezekiel 18, we're going to read verse 23. Ezekiel 18, page 680, verse 23. It says, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Then in verse 32 it says, I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back. God's plea for us is don't be involved in this one-time event of hell, which is a purging of sin from the universe. I don't want you there, but I'm not going to force you to be in heaven because heaven would be hell for you if I forced you to be there and you didn't want to be there. But I'm also not going to torment you endlessly for the rest of the universe. It's going to be a one-time event that is over and done with, and then God is going to recreate the world perfect, beautiful, and new. The dares tonight, and I want you guys to write your envelopes. I want you to acknowledge if you understand this and you accept it. Do you believe that God in his love will never force someone to go to heaven? It's out of love. It's not out of spite. Do you believe that hell is a one-time event that will not last forever? 
And do you believe that after sin is burned up, we will live in perfect, a perfect sinless heaven with God? You've been listening to The Disciple Dare from Pastor Jennifer Deans. We hope this message encouraged you as you learn to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you'd like to learn more about how you can take the dare, drop by ViennaSDA.org. There you'll find resources to get connected to others like yourself and to help in your spiritual journey.